If you listen to this podcast, you probably think Jesus is kind of a big deal. I mean, after all, he's God who came to earth, he lived among his creation, and he was killed on a brutal cross to pay the penalty for our sins because we could never pay for them. And if you're listening to this, you also may have at one point in your life asked yourself, why is it I truly believe Jesus Christ existed on earth and that it's not a fairy tale, that it's not made up? That's what I'd like to talk about today. You're listening to Onward in the Faith with Ray Burns. Ray is dedicated to equipping Christians to understand why they believe what they believe so that they can keep moving onward in their faith toward maturity in Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, visit patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. And make sure you visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. Now here's Ray with today's topic. Now fill in the blank for me. I believe Jesus Christ existed because... Now, for a lot of people, they're going to answer that with, well, I believe he existed because the Bible says so. And that's a very good Sunday school answer. It's an answer that will get you a pat on the back from Christians. The problem, of course, comes in that the Bible saying that Jesus existed already requires us to believe that the Bible is true, that it's real, that it's actually the word of God given to man. And where we run into a sticky situation with that is that we can apply that to really any religious text. Any belief system that says, oh, well, these gods, these beings actually existed. And if we just say, well, how do you know that? And we accept that they say, well, my religious book tells me so, or my religious tradition says so. Well, then we're going to run into issues because anyone can get away with it, right? Truth in that case is incredibly relative because it doesn't matter if it makes sense, or that there's any other proof confirming or denying that a God or a person existed, all that we want to use as fact is, well, this book says so. And so while, yes, the Bible is incredibly clear that Jesus Christ existed, that he walked on the earth, that he did what he did, what I instead want to do today is not just look at the surface level thing and say, well, the Bible says that Jesus lived, and so I believe the Bible because the Bible says that the Bible is true. Instead, what I want to do is look at events and people around the life of Jesus Christ, as well as actually look at some interesting proof of Christ's existence that we have outside of the Bible itself. But let's, of course, start with the important thing, and that is, what do we actually see in the Bible that can help us confirm that Jesus Christ existed? And this is not only going to give us evidence of his existence, but also why we believe the Bible isn't some piece of propaganda or something that has been completely made up to sell people on a particular religion. Now, the first thing to look at is just the sheer amount of human failure present really in all of the Bible, right? From Genesis on, we constantly see human beings failing, that even those that are called by God and are kind of his examples of our heroes of the faith still lived lives of failure to one degree or another. But within the short span of time that Jesus Christ was on this earth, we see that those who followed him weren't terribly convincing that Jesus Christ is the guy to follow. And by that, I mean that if Jesus was made up for one reason or another, and that is beyond the scope of this episode— But if he was made up, if he was a fictional character that was created for this reason or that, then it stands to reason 
that those who made him up are not going to only make Jesus seem like this really awesome and perfect being, but he's going to have those people around him be good examples and sort of a good poster or good advertisement for why you should follow Jesus Christ, why you should buy in to what he is selling. And so let's just consider just a few examples we have of the followers of Jesus Christ and how they ultimately made Jesus Christ or Christianity look. Now, if you read anywhere in the Gospels and even you know later on in Acts, you see Peter. He's constantly running his mouth. He's constantly making a fool of himself. He is regularly having to be chastised. And we see his failure go all the way to the point that he denied this person that he had been following. He refused to acknowledge that he knew who Jesus Christ actually was. Likewise, how did Christ get started on his road towards the cross? Well, Judas, another one of his followers, betrayed him for really not a lot of money. I mean, it wasn't chump change, but it certainly wasn't enough to retire on. And yet, Jesus Christ, this person that we are told existed and is worth following, was betrayed for really not much effort at all. Likewise, we see just his disciples in general would constantly quarrel and bicker and at some points even act childish about which one of them was the better disciple. And they were never rewarded for this. Jesus was often exasperated or even had to turn around and deal with them in their foolish behavior. When Jesus was arrested, we see the, you know, kind of very blunt words in Mark 14:50. It says, "And they, meaning all the disciples, all left him and fled." So as soon as their guy was taken, all the disciples scattered. They were scared. They were afraid. They had basically seeming to have given up on what they said was true and who they said was worth following. Now, of course, as we'll talk later, that didn't stick. But we do see that these people following him, right, the company that he kept, the examples that we have were a bunch of fools and cowards. And then if you keep reading in Mark 14 and, and go to 51... It says, a young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Now, to us, that's kind of a bit in a comedy movie, right? Someone kind of gets their towel snagged at the beach, and oh no, they're exposed and have to hide behind an umbrella or whatever. But back in the day, that was not a great thing. That was not funny. That was an embarrassment. That was almost shameful, really. And so what we see is that... When it says, and one disciple, what it most likely was is actually Mark, the writer of this gospel, is the one who had a linen sheet around him. And when people went to grab on him, he wriggled away. They held onto his sheet and he had to run away naked and embarrassed. Now, that detail is 100% not necessary to the narrative. It doesn't really go anywhere or lead to anything or teach us anything. It's simply stating a historical fact that doesn't make Christ's followers look good in any way, shape, or form. Now, after Christ was buried and resurrected and his disciples had been told that Christ had resurrected, they didn't really believe them. They didn't believe that it was true or possible. Now, number one, that's a huge strike against them and their faith and just how trustworthy this Jesus guy, if even the people that spent day after day with him didn't even buy what he was selling. But look what it says in Mark sixteen fourteen. It says, afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table, and he reproached them 
for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. So again, Jesus has to once again come in and he has to tell these guys, hey, you need to shape up. You need to get right. I am who I say I am, and you need to live as though it's true. You need to believe that I am who I say I am. And again, this doesn't make Christ look compelling if even those who are the closest to him aren't even really that invested. They aren't really that sold. They don't believe that he is who he says he is. And in general, we see that every time Jesus is engaging and interacting with the disciples, for the most part, they just didn't seem to get it. They would sometimes say the right things, but anytime Jesus was doing something that he did as God, that showed he was who he said he was, they thought he was a prophet. They thought he was a good teacher. They thought he was anything but God. And yet, as we see in the future of the New Testament, that's all we see of Christ is that he is God. And we understand that because he is God, not only is that why he came to earth, but that's why only he could act as our perfect sacrifice. And you would think that the apostles in this make-believe version of the Bible would kind of catch on to that. They would see the truth. They would start getting it and they would stand for it no matter what. But we see that it's really not until later that they actually catch the truth, that God actually turns their heart to see who Christ truly is. And so in general, we see that you know, on the surface, as we're reading through the Gospels, there's not a lot that makes Christ necessarily seem persuasive or worth following. We have a lot of people today that want to take bits and pieces of the Bible that seem nice and friendly and make Christ out to be this really good teacher and kind of have these really inspiring words that empower us and make us feel good. But on the whole, there's nothing about what we see in Christ that should persist for 2,000 years and change and shape the world the way it has. And so why then, if they're making Christ up, if they are trying to sell something, they're trying to push a religion, why record these weird events? Why record these embarrassing moments? Why show that Christ followers are, in a way, bumbling and have no idea what's going on for the entire time that he is on this earth? Well, if these Gospels are true, if the accounts of Christ's life and those around him are true, then it only makes sense to record the embarrassing things because they are true things. They are very human moments. They are what any of us would probably do in that situation, you know, because human life, the reality of who we are in Christ, it's a beautiful thing. We are saved. We are made righteous before God through him, but we still fail a lot. We still have a lot of moments of doubt, of rejecting him, of denying him, of running away when we could instead stand and proclaim the truth of who he is. But if we today were trying to tell people, oh yeah, you know, following Christ is great. It's amazing. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to do what we see a lot of people in the prosperity gospel do. We're going to make up all these things that Christ does for us that makes us feel good, that serves us so that we can look good and make Christ look appealing. But the Christ that we read about in the Bible isn't appealing based on his followers because these aren't guys who are rich, wealthy, handsome, smart, clever, or even faithful. Instead, they are fallen and broken human beings who, as we end up seeing, are made more righteous and go through a major process of sanctification where they are made more and more like Jesus Christ and less like these foolish men that we initially read about. Now, another point that we see in the Bible is how women were actually treated. Now, Christianity, of course, gets a lot of flack for being very anti-woman, a very sexist, masculine, 
patriarchal religion. But when we actually read about the life of Christ, he had more respect for women than anyone in his society would have. So much so that when we learn more and more about this ancient culture, we realize that how Jesus dealt with women and how the faith of women is recorded in the Bible would actually be a huge negative for Christianity if it was false and if Christ had never truly existed. You know, because in general, just think about every time Christ would deal with a woman. The Pharisees, the law keepers, they would go into an absolute tizzy because how dare he speak to a woman? How dare he give her respect? How dare he see her as a human being? But Christ was, he wasn't countercultural. Christ just was who he was. He was God. He was dealing with people in a certain time period, but dealing with them as a timeless and perfect God had to. And that is to love women and treat them with love and respect. And so just look at a few of the examples that we have of this. In Mark 5.34, we have a woman with a bleeding disorder. Now, in Jewish culture, of course, when you were on your period, you would be kind of removed from fellowship. You would be removed from the gathering because you were considered unclean because of what blood represented in the Old Testament and why the blood of Christ is actually so important to us. You know, God places a lot of importance on what blood means in terms of forgiveness and righteousness. And so in Old Testament law, bleeding and and blood and discharge and things like that were actually bad things, things you wanted to avoid. And so you would not touch these people. You would not really acknowledge them. You would want them to be far from you. But what did Christ do? He didn't just heal her. He certainly didn't cast her aside. Instead, he spoke lovingly to her and even referred to her as daughter. Now, that is a very intimate thing to say to someone, someone that others would be keeping away from and be wary of because they they would then have to clean themselves if they got contaminated by her. But Christ didn't care. Christ stood against and apart from foolish tradition and loved someone who was in need. Likewise, we see the woman at the well. She had been divorced five times and was at that moment living with her boyfriend. Not only that, she was a Samaritan. If you aren't familiar, Samaritans were basically half-breeds. They they had Jewish parents and they also had Gentile parents or non-Jewish parents. And so they were this really weird mix of the Jews don't want to deal with them because they are outside of them. They are Gentile. They are unclean. But at the same time, Gentiles didn't really have a good place for them because they were part of this Jewish group. And so they were kind of this ostracized group in a way. And so as we see with the story of the Good Samaritan, you know, God didn't see these people as lesser or other. And as we see with how Christ spoke to her, not only did he not come down on her, not only did he, you know, talk to her as a human being, but he shared the truth of who he was with her. You know, he told her, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be asking me for water from this well. You'd be asking me for, you know, the water that gives eternal life. But he doesn't just stop there. What does Jesus then do? He sends this Samaritan woman, this woman who was, you know, basically a serial divorcee to go and tell people about him. She, he gave her the charge to tell people the good news, to, te- to tell friends or people around her about this Christ who she had met and what he said and, and the truth and the life that he was offering. You know, he didn't try to go get one of her husbands or her ex-husbands. She didn't get his boyfriend. What did Christ do? He had a Samaritan woman spread 
the gospel to the town that she was in. In Luke 21, 1 through 4, this is when the poor widow, you know, the, the widow's might, if you remember that story from Sunday school, uh, you know, what do we see Christ do here? He praises a woman who is poor, who is a woman, for her faithfulness because she gave much out of the little that she had. Whereas, you know, these rich men, they were making a big show about giving a lot, but they weren't, one, they weren't giving much based on percentage of their income. And two, they weren't giving because they loved God. They gave to make a show of it. And so Christ, again, throws out all credibility that he could have and instead praises a woman. In Luke 13, 16, we see just like the woman with the bleeding disorder, Christ called a woman with a you know, a messed up spine, a daughter of Abraham. And again, Jewish culture, if you were a child of Abraham, that was a huge deal. Your identity, your safety, really, that you thought would save you was found in your identity as a child of Abraham, one of his descendants. And so here Christ, you know, calls out a woman and puts her on equal level as males who took pride in them being sons of Abraham. And then what do we see when Christ was on the cross? Well, in John 19, 27, when Christ is hanging on the cross, you know, the last moments of his life, it says, then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother, referring to Mary. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. So Christ, in a human way, was still making sure that his mother was taken care of. And then, you know, kind of tying into that in Matthew 28, 8, we see that women were the ones whose faith was bold enough to not just return to the tomb, but to tell others what had happened. Because remember, we saw that the disciples had rejected the idea that Christ had actually returned. But it was these women, these faithful women, not men, not his disciples even, but it was these women who went and told others about Christ and how he had returned from the dead and basically did exactly what he said he was going to do. Now, this isn't some big, you know, pro-women feminist idea. My point is simply that if 2,000 years ago, when you are inventing Christ and trying to create this new religion that kind of spawns out of Judaism, trying to create this false idea of this New Testament kind of teaching of this guy named Christ who never even existed, the last thing you're going to do in a very patriarchal, almost women-hating society is to make your guy, your main guy, a friend of women. It's not going to happen. It would be ridiculous because who is going to be in this kind of Roman culture, this, you know, very masculine, war loving, you know, manly men culture and follow a guy who is nice to women, who treats them as equal human beings, who says that they have equal value to their male counterparts. No one's going to do that outside of the grace of God in their lives. And that's another thing we see is that not only did this stand apart from things, but the fact that Christianity exploded in the way it did in spite of all logical marketing tactics really shows us that there is something more to this than just a nice guy with good teachings. And then finally, let's talk about the disciples one more time because we saw, you know, they were, you know, really embarrassing and, you know, kind of bumbling about making a fool of themselves. But that didn't last forever. And we know that that didn't last forever because we see what happened when the Holy Spirit came. And this is always hard for us because we always think, oh, you know, if Jesus was here now, 
things would be so much better. You know, why does Christ have to be gone? But remember, in John 16, 7, Christ himself said, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And now who is this him? Who is this person that Christ is sending? Well, we know that it's the Holy Spirit. And so then we see that when this, the comforter, the advocate, when we see that the Holy Spirit came, this is when lives really started getting changed. And this, I think, is why we see why it was an advantage, because Christ, as he came to earth in human form, he was a finite spatial being in a way, right? Christ could only be in one place at one time based on how he chose to come to earth. But the Holy Spirit, because he is spirit, is everywhere at all times. But look at what we see in Acts 2, verses 2 and 4. It says, Suddenly a sound came like a violent wind blowing from heaven and filled the entire house where they were sitting. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. So this is when we see that the apostles finally got it. God opened their minds. Because it wasn't, of course, about how clever they were. It wasn't that they finally understood it. Just like in our own lives, it's not about, oh, I finally get it. I finally solved Christianity. No, the Holy Spirit opened their hearts and opened their eyes to the reality of who Jesus Christ truly was, just as he has done in all of our lives as well. And so we kind of see this beautiful switch because these same clueless men who thought that Christ, you know, in in Luke 22 38, you know, they thought that Christ literally wanted them to collect swords and Christ just kind of, you know, face palms and says, just that's enough. You know, these same guys who just didn't get it, they had no scope of what Christ was actually talking about. They now understood what Christ did for Jews and for Gentiles alike. And so now we would think, well, if Christ didn't really exist, now is the part of the story where these guys kind of get their lives right. They become really moral and they become successful and they kind of start conquering the world and things like that, right? They become heroes. Not so much. Because while, yes, they became more in line with who Christ was, right? Their lives became more godly, more filled with righteousness and holiness because they loved the things of God more than they loved the things of the world. But in a human sense... Their lives almost went from bad to much, much worse. Because these men who, you know, they had, they had spent years walking and talking with Jesus Christ. They were there when he was hung on a tree and mocked and beaten and killed. These guys were likewise hunted down and killed for following Jesus Christ. So if you were an apostle, living to a ripe old age, retiring, living in comfort, that wasn't for you. Which is why this whole idea of the prosperity gospel, of, of the Bible being just this, you know, cheer me up book or, you know, our means of getting what we want and having self-empowerment. This is why it is so absolutely ludicrous to treat Jesus Christ as a genie in a bottle where you rub it and you ask for your wish and he grants it to you. Because we look at the lives of the disciples and we realize that nothing about their lives lines up with the idea that if you follow Christ, your life on earth is going to be good. Because this life on earth is garbage compared to what we know is waiting for us. And so if you're out there and you're hearing this and you are thinking that, oh, you know, if you pray right, if you have enough faith, if you give money to ministries that God is going to bless you, read about the lives of the apostles. 
because there is nothing there that fits with any idea that if you sow money into a ministry, God's going to give you money back. If you just have enough faith, you're going to be healed. We don't see it. What we see in the apostles' lives are things like Andrew. He was crucified in Greece for preaching about Christ's sin and salvation. Peter and Philip were crucified upside down for preaching about Christ's sin and salvation. Thomas was stabbed to death by soldiers for preaching about Christ's sin and salvation. James was stoned and beaten to death for preaching about Christ. Matthias, who was Judas's later replacement, was burned to death for preaching about Christ's sin and salvation. Paul, you know, the author of a bulk of what we have in the New Testament, was eventually beheaded after multiple attempts on his life, after multiple imprisonments. Why? Because he preached about Christ, sin, and salvation. Now, John is kind of the only one that doesn't really follow the pattern of the apostles. You know, because we don't fully know what happened to him, but he didn't live a peachy life either. Because one thing we know is that he nearly died from being boiled alive in oil. So here's the point of this. Here's how this proves the reality and the existence of Jesus Christ. And not even just his existence, but why there is so much more to him than just being a good teacher. Now, all religions have martyrs. You know, there are, you know, I mean, we don't want like talking about it, but even Christians have killed people for their religion. It's a fact of life. Let's clarify. People who claim to be Christians have killed others because of their religion or want to today kill others because of their religion. But here's the problem. Today, if we die for Christ, or if we die for Islam or Buddhism or whatever religion, if we die for it, we, aren't, we are dying for what we believe to be true, what we hope to be true. Now, as Christians, you know, as we've seen all throughout this ministry, I hope we have more reason than others to have hope because our God is truly alive. But today, we can die for you know, believing that someone once existed, that these teachings are true and that they come from this time long ago. But here's what makes the, the brutal lives and death of the apostles so significant. They weren't dying. They weren't living years in suffering and persecution and being hated by others. They weren't living these lives because of what they were told was true. They weren't basing it on something that they hoped to be true because they falsely believed in these words written 2,000 years ago. These guys were dying because they walked and talked with Christ and they believed that he was truly who he said he was. They were dying for a guy that they ate lunch with, that they rode on a boat with. And this is incredible because if they believe that Christ truly existed— as they clearly did, why would they die for him if they didn't truly believe everything about him? So it's obvious that, you know, as we can see from history, these guys were, were murdered because they followed this guy named Jesus. But there was so much more to their faith because they truly believed that everything they were experiencing in this life was worth it, that they refused to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ and the salvation he brought in order to save us from our sin, they refused to let that go. They would let their lives be ended maybe decades earlier than it would have been otherwise. Why do that? Who would do that if they didn't truly believe that this man that they had spoken with, that they knew that they had shared their lives with was truly more than just a good teacher and a good person? The only thing that makes sense 
is that they had truly experienced Christ being a real person for themselves. But more than that, they had experienced the grace and the mercy and the necessity of Jesus Christ in their lives because they knew that sin had made them dead to God. They were guilty before the judge and that only Jesus Christ could pay that penalty for them so that their relationship with God the Father could be truly restored. It's an amazing and it's a beautiful thing. And this is why I'm feeling a little ranty on the prosperity gospel in this episode because it just it infuriates me that people take our Savior and just drag him through the mud and just make him a vending machine where you know, it's just a transaction. If I put a dollar in, I am expected to get a candy bar out. That is how we want to treat Christ. Even outside the prosperity gospel, we say, Christ, I've been faithful. I've done this and that. You know, how, why don't I have what I want? Why am I not happy? It's because Christ is so much more than our present circumstances. The apostles knew that. They didn't just die peacefully in their sleep, believing a lie. They died brutally, believing 100% that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. But moving on from God's word, because there are people who can take, you know, that evidence, that thing that from a marketing, from a public relations standpoint, doesn't make Christ look good at all based on the time period when the Bible was written. People can take that. They can explain it away, right? No amount of logic and reason and evidence is going to convince somebody. But despite all that, what is really interesting to me and This actually excites me. This is a bit of a history nerd moment, and I'm not a history nerd, but uh, just a little bit about me. I, you know, I grew up in church since I was 10, and I'd kind of, you know, I I prayed the prayer falsely, and I thought I was saved for about eight years. But what really started working on my heart was that, you know, I grew up being told Jesus is real. Why? Well, the Bible says so. Well, why do I believe the Bible is real? Well, because the Bible says you should trust it. Uh, Okay. But what really got me was that there's not just evidence in the Bible that Jesus existed, and there's not just evidence about the people and the events around it that would be ridiculous to write if they weren't true. What God used in my life was the fact that even people who didn't believe that Christ was God, that they just thought he was a guy, they acknowledged that, okay, yes, he existed But then they want to put a little asterisk with it, right? That he didn't do all this stuff that he said, that he was just a teacher, this kind of, you know, carpenter's son from Galilee and, you know, all that. But that's what really sold me is that this guy named Jesus truly existed. And that, to me, is what put all the pieces together. But, you know, God uses something in all of our lives that is totally different. But let me share with you just two really good pieces of evidence we have outside the Bible that proves that Jesus Christ really and truly did exist. Now, the first is the writings of a man named Tacitus. Now, he was a Roman historian who, at one point, was writing a biography on Nero. Now, Nero, as you may know, burned down a part of Rome and then blamed it on Christians when Roman citizens decided that they didn't really like some dude burning their stuff down. So here is just, I'm going to read a snippet of what Tacitus wrote, and this was translated by uh, Robert Van Voorst. It says, Nero substituted as culprits and punished in the most unusual way those hated for their shameful acts, whom the crowd called Christians. The founder of this name, Christ, had been executed in the reign of Tiberius by the procurator Pontius Pilate. 
Suppressed for a time, the deadly superstition erupted again, not only in Judea, the origin of this evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all things horrible and shameful from everywhere come together and become popular. Now, of course, notice in this that he makes no mention of Christ being God, nor does he make mention of Christ allegedly living, allegedly being executed by Rome. No, what he does is he writes as a historian giving historical facts. He says what happened, he was executed. He gives a timestamp to it during the reign of Tiberius. And then what is kind of a beautiful little side note for this is that, hey, this lines up with exactly what we see in the Gospels. So again, just a little bit of proof that we see that even those who didn't believe that Christ was anything more than a man still had to acknowledge that, yeah, fine, he existed. Now, the second one that I want to share is Josephus. This was a Jewish priest who was well known for being a historian of the Jews. Now, we have two excerpts from Josephus that mention Christ. Now, one according to historians, is kind of suspect, and there's apparently some good evidence that Christians kind of doctored it to make him say things about Christ that Josephus didn't actually say. Fine. Uh, But his second excerpt is widely agreed to be directly from Josephus himself. And in it, the admission of Christ's existence isn't even his purpose. He's not writing to talk about Christ. Uh, Instead, he's retelling how some Christians were summoned and sentenced to death, and then he uses Christ in a lineage sort of way. So here's what he writes. Being, therefore, this kind of person, which, as he was talking, he was talking about a heartless Sadducee. So, therefore, being a heartless Sadducee, Ananus, thinking that he had a favorable opportunity because Festus had died and Albinus was still on his way, called a meeting of judges and brought into it the brother of Jesus, who is called Messiah, James by name, and some others. He made the accusation that they had transgressed the law, and he handed them over to be stoned. Now, stick with me, because what we see here is really, really interesting. Even if you hate history, fine. Even if you don't like history, this is really interesting to see the how and the why that Josephus writes this, and just how kind of casually he talks about the existence of Jesus Christ. Now, when he is trying in his historical record to clarify who specifically he's talking about, he couldn't just use the name James because James was a very popular name. He also couldn't use the term James, the son of Joseph, because, again, Joseph was a common name. And so there's going to be a lot of James who are sons of Joseph. So in order to be very specific and to narrow down the one human being that he could possibly be talking about, What does he do except invoke his brotherhood to Jesus Christ? Because he says, just in order to narrow down who James was, making no statement about who Christ was and whether this Jewish historian believed that he said who he said he was, Josephus specifically says that this is James, the brother of Jesus, who is called Messiah. And I think today we can probably assume that he, in his mind, air quoted the term Messiah because... You know, he, he was still following Jewish law and didn't believe that Christ was who he said he was. But despite that, this Jewish priest had his doubts about Christ, and he was probably very suspicious and would never say anything that would give any credence to fuel the fire of this group of people who were taking his religious book 
what we would call the Old Testament and kind of using it to tell about how this guy named Jesus Christ fulfilled it and how this old law was done away with. You know, that was a very uncomfortable and frustrating thing for Jews at that time. But despite all that, he may have doubted who Christ was, but we can see that he had no doubts that Christ truly existed. And so, you know, I'm releasing this episode before Easter, but of course this is relevant anytime. But, you know, if you're listening to this before Easter and you're getting ready to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, you know, one thing that we can get from all this, from from what we see in the Bible, what we see outside the Bible, one thing is clear is that Jesus lived, and because he lived, and because we believe the Word of God, we also know that he lives today. Right now, we live in a world that denies the gospel. But despite that, we can find great joy in the clarity of Christ's existence, Our faith can be strengthened and emboldened by looking at things like historical facts or seeing how the Bible talks about Christ in a way that wouldn't make sense unless the events had truly happened the way that they are recorded. And so while belief in Christ doesn't need to be a matter of being convinced mentally, you know, about applying reason and nothing else, we can see how using our reason, using our minds— gives our faith so much strength because it's not just based on our emotion. It's not based on our hope. We see that what we believe is true and makes sense and that we could believe nothing else because to do so would be ridiculous. You know, just like the apostles who were basically said, hey, if you want to live, if you don't want to be crucified, if you don't want to be boiled in oil, then just say that Christ was just a guy. Say that he's not true. And just like the faith of the apostles was based on what they knew was true. We as Christians today can live our lives. We can face persecution. We can face hatred. We can have the strength to tell others about Christ. We can disciple people because we know that he is who he says he is. He is God. He is alive. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we would not have to pay them because we could not possibly do it. And so as you're listening to this, take encouragement that history itself supports our belief in Jesus Christ, that history is, is on the side of Christianity. So believe that you know, Christ lived and that Christ died. You know, we see that in historical record. But we can also believe through the power of the Holy Spirit that not only did he die, he resurrected. We know that that's true. We know that when it says that he paid the propitiation, he paid the one-to-one payment for our sins on the cross, that every lie we told, every angry word we said to our friends or our family— Every sin we've ever committed was put on Christ on that cross, that God looked at him and he poured his wrath on Jesus Christ in our place. That wrath that was meant for me, it was meant for you. God took that and he placed it on Jesus Christ. And the only reason that Christ could take it wasn't because he was a good person, but because Jesus Christ was perfect. He had no sin. He had no sin debt that he had to pay. And because he was debt-free, he could take on the debt of all of God's people. He could pay our price. And because God is good, because God is just, we can believe that because all his wrath was poured out on Christ then, that God has none left for us. But of course, this isn't just a freebie, right? Not everyone gets this free gift. It is for those who trust and believe that Christ is who he said he is, that he is the Son of God that he came to this earth, that through his death, it is the only way that we have forgiveness of sins before God. 
It is only by asking that Christ to save us, not a prosperity gospel Christ, not a human being with really good teachings, but Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, God who came to earth and took on flesh, dwelt among us and died and rose again so that we could likewise live with him. We can believe that all of that is true and that despite what the world tells us, despite what our emotions tell us, or even our experience tells us, we can trust that what God's word itself tells us is true. And if we believe it's true, then we can worship Christ in a way that no other religion can worship their God because we have concrete understanding and faith and truth on our side. So let's finish this up with 1 Corinthians 15 verses 17 through 22. And as I read this, or as I hope maybe you even pause and kind of uh, look this up yourself, really just consider if we believe what this says. And if we believe it, is that affecting our lives? Is this the Christ that we are living for? Not a Christ that gives us a good life now, but a Christ that gives us eternal life after this one. If we're believing that all this is true, then we need to ask ourselves, am I living a life that is given to Christ, that is fully his Or am I living a life that is mine? Because for whatever reason, I don't want to live and act in the faith that I truly have. So again, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 through 22. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. You are still in your sins. Furthermore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. For if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than anyone. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This is the God that we love. This is the God that we serve. This Jesus Christ came as a man to fix what we as human beings had broken. Adam was our first failure, and Christ was our full victory. So this Easter Sunday, and every day before and after it, my greatest hope is that I, and anyone listening to this, will live their lives as though their faith in Jesus Christ is true. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. This is a listener-supported podcast. If you would like to support this ministry, you can visit me at patreon.com slash onward in the faith. I hope this episode helps you keep moving onward in your faith toward maturity in Christ.